a classic example of that was on on dog soldiers uh we needed to get a shot of like these werewolves uh, eating on some guts and stuff like that and, and we achieved it through basically taking the the suit head off and a couple of the guys basically just hand operated them they got their, their hands in the back of the head and operated the jaws and we just like and, and it worked beautifully it's like it just gave a real life to it that you couldn't get through doing animatronics or whatever Welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. I'm often asked what movie I think is the scariest movie of all time, which is impossible for me to answer, of course. However, I do know the movie that has affected me the most of any genre film I've seen in the last 20 years. Quite simply, The Descent is on the shortlist of what I see as being a film that has it all. Story, craftsmanship, and heart, all beyond reproach. And I have watched as its creator has continued to craft exemplary work ever since. That filmmaker is Neil Marshall. With films like Dog Soldiers, about a group of soldiers trapped in a cabin surrounded by werewolves. Doomsday, which is a loving tribute to the great works of John Carpenter. To his celebrated work on shows like Hannibal and Game of Thrones. Neil has become one of the most accomplished directors working when it comes to spectacularly suspenseful and explosive action and suspense. His work is so exhilarating, it sometimes is until after the film that you realize how much heart is in there too. Neil and I talk on his formative years, learning all the crafty tricks making low-budget films. How one of said tricks saved a ton of time and money when executing a major moment of Game of Thrones. How to shoot in real darkness and utilizing a wide frame to create tension. So, let's descend into the darkness with Neil Marshall and prepare to be illuminated. Hey Neil. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, it's a cloudy, gray Sunday here in (laughs) in Kent. (laughs) Yeah, you're about, I think, what, five, you're five hours ahead of me, right? Yeah. Where you are? Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's, the fall weather is going here. I've got my, my ghosty Halloween mark yeah. getting yeah. all the I've got my, my book as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, fall is definitely here. Yeah, it kind of went from. Got the, any big plans for Halloween? Uh, well, actually, I'm going to be flying to Italy on Halloween. Um, I wasn't meant to be, but I'm going to, uh, the Trieste. Uh, film festival there. I'm on the jury there, and and the Lair's playing, and Dog Soldiers is playing. Um, but they have to fly me there on Halloween. So I've never travelled on Halloween. It'll be a new thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll have to watch something scary on the plane then. Oh, definitely, definitely. Got to celebrate maybe, it somehow. Maybe, yeah, the, maybe the Twilight Zone, where with the, the the gremlin on the wing or something. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be a good one just to get into the mood and where you'll be and all. Um, well, let's dive right in. So uh, let's start a bit about sort of your your uh, sort of inspirational and developmental years as a as a genre fan. Now, you were born in, in Newcastle, England. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I, I was uh, born and bred, um, was there for many years. And uh, that's kind of where I started making movies, really. Um, I... I think so much of it came from my um, my my dad particularly. 
Um, not only is he a, an artist and a ex-soldier and such like, he's also a movie fan and he loves his westerns, but he also likes his horror movies and things like that. And he first introduced me to, um, I think it was The Bride of Frankenstein was the earliest recollection I have of seeing any kind of horror film as uh, some some night. I think I was like five years old or something like that. And he kind of, he came and woke me up and said, you know, there's something on TV you've got to see. And uh, and it was The Bride of Frankenstein. And it was just, you know, I was entranced completely. <laughs> And then that's a good one. That's, that's a, a good one to start. That's a great too, one right? to start on, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. But I think there was a season on, so like very quickly, I got to see like you know the Mummy and the Wolfman, and you know so a, a lot of the Universal horror, and that that was kind of very early on. Then it, it, it's like there's certain steps that I went through. The next thing that that happened to me that I recall really was seeing Star Wars at the cinema for the first time when I was seven, and. Uh, that got me absolutely hooked on going to see the movies at the cinema, you know, and then, then I was obsessed with going to the cinema after that, um, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s. And then the VHS, you know, arrived, and I got into horror films through that more than the cinema because I was too young to go and see anything significant at the cinema then um, with the UK rating system. And so, uh, yeah, so I then started. Now, is that, is that sort of the pre-video nasties kind of yeah, era of all? It was just, right, okay. yeah, kind of before and during video nasties. Uh, I got to see a lot of the, the, the future video nasties before they became banned, I guess. And then once they became banned, it sort of became this currency thing, this black market currency of like trying to get hold of the films that you weren't allowed to get hold of. And so we'd end up like... Um, you know, paying for third generation, fourth generation VHS copies of, of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Evil Dead and things like that, which had like Arabic subtitles on and God knows what. I mean, <laughs> absolutely crazy. And um, isn't it funny to think of a movie like Evil Dead being sort of censored? It's such a like it's such a it's demon. It's so over the top kind of fantasy horror the idea to me of them worrying about that corrupting young people, like it's so ridiculous. Complete. I mean, now it, now absolutely it does. I mean, it did then anyway. It was just the fact that they lumped in certain films like Evil Dead, like um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, with you know um, f uh, films like what was it? What was it? Um, SS Experiment Camp and Faces of Death and you know and and uh, you know, the real real nasty stuff. Uh, that had little in the way of redeeming qualities, but, you know, they couldn't really see the difference in it. It was just the fact that suddenly this stuff was available and could come, you know, straight into your home. And it was at like age 12, 13, I was, I, I got to see I Spit on Your Grave and I got to see, you know, yeah. zombie flesh eaters and stuff like that. And um, did it traumatize me? Not, not in a, I, I think it certainly had an impact, but not a traumatization kind of vibe it was like no i think it inspired me fired. yeah <laughs> uh but at the same now is that a cocker spaniel beside you there it certainly is it's a it's a, a king charles cavalier i have a and cocker she's, spaniel she's trying to get food it <laughs> does exactly what your dog is doing right now i'll be on the show yeah and i'll look down and he's sitting there just staring at me with his eyes burning into me give me a treat until she i is, give him one she's yeah. just had treats she's nagged she's <laughs> naggy and needy aren't you there isn't anything else. Don't have anything else. Um, yeah, it doesn't matter how much you pour me. You're not going to get anything. Look at her. <laughs> like that. Um, Making a cameo. She wants to get on camera. Yeah. But I think, you know, at the, at, at the same time as watching those kind of films, I was also seeing for the first time Alien and The Omen and The Exorcist and uh, American Werewolf in London and The Howling. And, and yeah. 
becoming, you know, obsessed with horror films and, and being able to root out good ones from bad ones, I think, at the same time. I definitely was, you know, because I remember seeing American Werewolf for the first time and, like, you know, I'd read about it and they say, you know, it's like a comedy horror and I watched it for the first time age 10 or something like that. And I'm like, I don't get the comedy here. I don't get the comedy. It's terrifying. <laughs> I'm scared out of my wits. And it's only after sort of seeing it many times and growing up as a teenager watching it, like, oh, yeah, I totally get the comedy now. It's like, yeah. Uh, the, or the howling as well. It's like scared the shit out of me the first time I saw it. But the, but I've often been asked, like, what was the scariest experience as a child you saw anything? And um, I don't know how old I was, eight or something like that. And I went around to a friend of mine's house and we watched a film that was on television um, he only had a black and white TV at the time, black and white portable television. And uh, so we watched this film and it was The Legend of Boggy Creek. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we didn't fully understand that it was a fake documentary. So um, those things were not that common at the time. And it was just before, way before Blair Witch and such like. And that scared the living daylights out of me. Absolutely scared the <laughs> shit out of me. And I, and the thing is, I've never watched it since. And I don't want to because I know it won't be very good. It's like it won't have the same effect. It was like a, it was a great little memory that really, really shook me up. And uh, yeah, it, so, so it's odd ones. It's not necessarily what you expect um to scare you yeah i mean to be honest with you most people around sort of i would say they were born in the late 60s up until probably around the early 80s yeah the most common choice i get for scariest movie that scared people the most is the exorcist almost every time yeah i, the I mean yeah. definitely i i was lucky enough the first time i saw that was actually in a cinema um and yeah the crowd i guess that was in the 80s sometime so I was really pleased, pleased that I got to see it on the big screen for the first time. Um, and it certainly it freaked me out. I, I, I guess it's more likely to freak like parents out and stuff like that. But, uh, <laughs> right. but it's an you know, incredible movie, incredibly effective. I love with that movie the fact that, you know, if, if it were made today, as soon as the girl starts behaving weirdly, it'd be like, oh, my God, she's possessed. But in that film, <laughs> it's so matter of fact of like, no, we take it to a doctor. And then the doctor, you know, they do all that horrendous tests on her and they take it to a psychiatrist yeah. and so and, and, and the, the, the possession thing is like the last thing that anybody comes to because why would you, you know? Because uh, the actresses hadn't been made in that world. Ex exactly. So, so it's like, you know, yeah. so the fact that they go through the process to come to you know the conclusion that she's possessed rather than just leaping to that as we would now. But uh, and, and I think it's all the more powerful for it. Yeah, it's funny, too, because I, you know, one of the things I'm always interested about when I talk to genre filmmakers or, you know, actors, whoever is that, who sort of your kind of early formative heroes were in the genre, whether it was a director or an actor, you know, uh, like for me, it was John Carpenter and the actor was was Donald Pleasance, who was like, I remember getting to a point when I was very young, like 10, of being very obsessed with Donald Pleasance and watching everything he made and like, there's this story I've told on the show before about being with a group of friends in like grade five or six and them all saying, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is the best and Stallone and coming with these scenarios where these guys would fight each other. And I was like, <laughs> well, Donna Pleasant would kick their asses and them all looking at me like, who is that? Who's that, um, who's that guy? Yeah. I think I, yeah. the thing is my, 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 I, I knew Donald Pleasant's more from like the great escape than Halloween at that time. It's like, that's such a Donald Pleasant source for me. But, but certainly John Carpenter, I mean, I, you know, I, I, the, his films had such an impact on me and, and my filmmaking and his style and lessons learned from the things he said in interviews and stuff like that. 
the way you know how he managed to stretch a budget um all that kind of stuff i mean i think you know probably more so than spielberg i think carpenter's inspired my work directly um even though i'd always i've always said that spielberg was like the guy who made me want to make movies which he is because he made raiders of the lost ark but that's that's the next step in my journey was seeing raiders and realizing that that's what i had to do for a living but getting to make a film like raiders isn't very easy but getting to make a film like john carpenter's early stuff was achievable it seemed attainable um yeah kid growing up in newcastle was like okay horror is is maybe the way to go and i love horror equally anyway so what's what's the harm in that um but i ended up you know with dog soldiers my first film i kind of combined so many different genres that i that i love from horror to war movies to siege movies to westerns it's like it's all packed in there yeah dog soldiers you know is, is such an interesting film to me in that i i watched it again to prepare to talk to you today and i and i've seen it quite a few times and it, i adore it it's a wonderful film um but it has i never I, I don't know why i never realized that it's such a it's kind of a werewolf version of assault on precinct 13 very like, very much so yeah. very much so i mean <laughs> you know more pretty much more than any other film assault on precinct 13 was the inspiration for dog soldiers the idea of the faceless enemy that's just outside and you can't kill them or whatever is in trying to pick you off was hugely inspirational you know, I love siege movies, real Bravo, but then, you know, Carpenter himself says, you know, Assault and Precinct 13 is just a remake of Rio Bravo or, or, yeah. or, you know, spin off, whatever you want to call it, a spin on it, not necessarily a direct remake. But um, Rio Bravo, Zulu, um, just these great siege movies, you know, I mean, aliens to a point as well. Um, and then throw in, you know, Predator, you know, in the, in the soldiers versus monsters subgenre. Predators, a huge inspiration, aliens. Um, so much went into Dog Soldiers, so much. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. When I was watching it yesterday, it was almost kind of just scratching down notes while I was watching it. I was like, okay, that's sort of Evil Dead nod there. Oh, there's a there's a bunch of H.G. Wells kind of yeah. uh, winks and nods. Are you a big fan of Wells? Is that how that ended up in Absolutely. there? Absolutely, yeah. You know, I got hooked on Wells through the um, the War of the Worlds uh, musical album with Richard Burton and, and such like on it. Um, I got really hooked into Wells on that, and uh, then that led me to the books and stuff. So, um so yeah, that's why we named Sean Pertwee's characters Harry Harry G. Wells. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I'm sure there's a few more World War of the Worlds kind of references in there. Yeah, I think there's a character in it who's named after Bruce Campbell, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's Bruce Campbell. Yeah, just that, I mean, because for for that generation, like having seen Evil Dead and then of course Evil Dead Two, I mean Campbell was a complete icon and he still is. But like at that yeah. point, it was like the height of his. Um, emergence um, and Evil Dead yeah. 2 again a massive inspiration so I had to call a character Bruce Campbell <laughs> yeah when you put those little kind of nods and winks at, at films you love or whatever is that something you're doing more for fun for yourself or is that for the fans to kind of pick them out and kind of find these little these little homages and reference points uh, a little bit of both I mean I think because I am a fan so therefore if, it, if I do it for myself I'm doing it for the fans um, I'm, def right. I'm definitely doing it for fans because it's something that I appreciated. I used to love spotting the in-jokes in, in early Spielberg films and things like that when I became aware of in-jokes as, in, as a movie thing. I was like, oh, in-jokes, I'd never really heard of that before. And learning yeah. what these things were, and so I, was, I, I wanted to put them in my films. And I always think that the best, the best in-jokes work when the fans get them 
But if you don't get them, it doesn't detract from the film. Like if you if if you're completely yeah. oblivious to these jokes, the film still works in its own right, and that's and as it should be. But it's nice just a little wink between you and those who you know share the same passions as you. Yeah. For sure. And it's almost, I think, you know, kind of the genre, this genre in particular, horror, I think, is kind of, it has that baked into it, don't you think? That, that the guys who make horror love the, the same people that the guys who are watching these movies do. They're such fans of the, of, the, of the people that inspired them, whether in your case it's someone like John or, you know, or someone like Spielberg. And it, it's funny to me to think of having heard you say that now and thinking about your movies, how much of a marriage of those two sensibilities is in your work of, of the Spielberg and the Carpenter? Um, no, no, I, to- I totally agree. I, I think so much of it is that, the, you know, as you say, the people, a lot of the people who make horror films are fanboys, are, are horror fans. Um, so they come from that same background as the audience. Um, but they're also, in my experience anyway, the people who make horror films are like the nicest people in the movie business. Yeah, totally. Yes. Um, you know, I, I've been, I always joke about that with people. I'm like, if you're one of those scary guys, work on a comedy. Exactly. Area. That's so where you'll you, be. You meet people who make yeah. comedies and stuff like that. They're all dark and depressed, and like there's something, something you know wrong with them. Yeah. Um, not all the case, but like that's, as a general rule, um, other other people in other genres just seem to you know either up their own asses or whatever. But like the people in the horror business right. are the loveliest, most uh, generous, you know people that i've ever encountered in the business um and yeah and, and up for a laugh it's like you know I, I, I trying to explain to people who've never worked on horror films before that it's actually a really good laugh making these things like the you know and the yeah. more disgusting it gets the more fun it is to make you know it's like going back to school and just getting in with paints and you know play-doh and stuff like that get your hands dirty in the mud like because you just get every time i make a horror film i inevitably end up covered in blood like because you just want to get <laughs> stuck in there and help out and um yeah and it's a lot of fun and what you're putting on the screen can be terrifying and horrifying but when you're on set and it's all just like latex rubber and fake blood and stuff like that yeah. you know the illusion is completely shattered and it's just it's just fun stuff to do and because because you know the effect it's going to have at the other end on the audience and it's like, well, and you it's, know, it's like playing pranks on the audience. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's like when you were a kid and you'd get, you know, you play soldiers or cowboys and Indians or whatever the games were you played when you were a kid. But I always think that when you're making a horror film, like I remember I was shooting a movie uh, with Dean Cundy and Dean and I had, there was a sequence where, um, there was a prosthetic like on the actor and there was a, a, a phony corpse that fell out of a closet and there was fake blood everywhere. And, and I turned to Dean and I was just like, this is so much fun. It's, <laughs> it's just one of those moments where you're like, you know, our job is fun. This is we, not everybody gets to do this. And I think that's something people don't always understand about horror. It's like, it's not sinister on set. It's not dark and gloomy. It's, it's kid stuff when you're shooting. Yeah. It. Yeah. I, I don't know many horror film directors who like go that whole method thing of like, you know, you know, and I know Kubrick did a little bit with, with the shining, but um, yeah, but you know, terrifying the actors and stuff like that, you know, you have yeah. a degree of fun with it. I did a little bit on the descent where I kept the, um, the creatures hidden from the actresses um, and, introduced them literally in a in in the dark in a scene uh for the first time but it kind of backfired because they just kind of ran screaming off the set and that's <laughs> not the take we ended up using so, but it was fun to do and they got into the spirit yeah. of the whole thing that you know they were like oh my god what are these things gonna look like what is it they have no idea yeah um and they, they fully got into that spirit of things but it wasn't meant to torture them in any kind of way <laughs> 
No, you weren't trying to like debase and, and make them get to the point where they were like upset and crying in their trailers or something. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't 50, 50 it takes. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's funny too, because one of the things that, you know, it's interesting when you look at a filmmaker's body of work and in, in the case of your films, like I was going through and visiting them kind of in a consecutive way and you see these sort of thematics that reappear. And I was noticing that, you know, there's there's a similar thematic of of a, a sort of an ensemble cast of characters trapped in a situation, you know, or in an isolated location. I mean, it's in The Descent, it's in Dog Soldiers, it's in Doomsday, it's in two of your, your Game of Thrones is even kind of a similar thing. You know, it's Game of Thrones, it's, they're, they're in still in very much a one location, sort of they're trapped in a castle, they're trapped on the wall. Like, uh, you know, what it is, and, and then again in your new film, The Lair, you know, they're, they're, they're in a trapped in a situation. What is it about that setup and, 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 and taking an ensemble cast and kind of sticking them in a situation like that that appeals to you? Um, well, I mean, I can't claim credit for Game of Thrones because I didn't write any of that stuff. But in terms of my own projects, it maybe maybe it really all just bring back to Assault on Precinct 13 because I I love that setup so much. I mean, it's very it's very Howard Hawks, the kind of the dynamics of the group. You know, and it applies to the thing and the, and the original, you know, thing from another world, um, and and only angels have wings and stuff like that. That that Hawks did. It's like, yeah, I love that kind of just a group stuck in a situation and they have to figure it out. Like that's just something that really uh, entertains me and, and I get involved with as watching films. So so I don't know. And I I also just like working with a group of actors as well. Um, it seems with an ensemble and stuff like that, there's less ego involved. It's like everybody just has to muck in together and get through it. And, and, and if you don't support each other, it's not going to work. You know, you, you're going to dismantle the whole operation if you try and steal other people's thunder. It just doesn't work that way. And I've never, I've never experienced it that way either. So I'm like, I've been very lucky in that. You know, the cast that I've worked with have so been so, um, you know, supportive of, of the group dynamic um, and getting and mucking in. I, I, I've said it before that by the time we finished shooting. Dog soldiers, you know, those guys would have literally fought and died for each other. I mean, they were, they were, they were blood. <laughs> and the same went for the yeah. girls at the end of the descent, and the same has gone for various other casts that I worked for. You know, it's it worked with. It's um, you know, they've bonded and and become a group. And I think create it's it's all part of that creating a family thing that you do when you make a movie anyway. It's just it's just a family within a family. Like you create the cast family and then you create the crew family and then the whole thing is one big family. And um, you know, and and that's a joy to do when it when it works out nicely. Yeah. I mean it's 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 funny too because you know in Dog Soldiers in particular, they're, they're the the camaraderie of the cast, and certainly in the Descent as well. Like it's such a part of the narrative at that point that the, the, these actors, you know, uh, because I, I, and maybe for a general audience, I don't know if this plays out different, but for me as a filmmaker watching those films, you can feel the 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 chemistry among those actors. You know, is deeply rooted that they're not acting that part. That, that there is a real, you know, There's kind of care for one. To it, yeah, no, I, I, I and, yeah. and it, it's true as well. If it shows that way, it's because it was for real. Um, you know, definitely the guys on Dog Soldier, and it was easier on Dog Soldier just because they were all meant to be mates throughout the whole thing. Descent was kind of a little bit difficult because it was kind of about friendships falling apart. But uh, behind the camera, those friendships were amazing. And what what happened in that film was like, you know, because we shot it in story order and everybody was, you know, each, each time somebody died, they were wrapped. You know, they died on screen and then we gave them a bunch of flowers and wrapped them and that was that. 
And then we never saw them again. And then on the last day of filming, the whole cast came back just to be there for the last day of filming and, and share the experience. And so, um, you know, I guess we'd done something right that everybody liked each other. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, now, as I said before, I know the internet never tells a lie, but is it true that Kevin McKidd had some kind of injury and almost you were going to replace him with Jason Statham, but there was a scheduling problem, so Kevin was brought back or something along those lines? Uh, it's, that's a little bit kind of ask about face. Um, Jason Statham was uh, attached to the project about maybe three years before we actually made it. Um, he'd just unlocked stock because it took us six years to get the, the finance together to make Dog Soldiers. Right. And uh, somewhere in the middle of that process, we approached Statham because I'd seen him in Lockstock, Lockstock of Two Spooky Barrels. And just off the back of that film, I was like, that guy's going to be a star. Out of that, out of that, out of that cast, that guy's going to be a movie star. And we should get him in Dog Soldiers. And so we met him. He loved the script. He said, you know, I'd love to do it. But we didn't have the money at that point. And he kind of stuck around. You know, he said, said he would be, you know, he was going to do it for like about a year maybe. Um, but then he got offered um, Ghost of Mars for, in the States. And it was like, you know, and I said, I, like, you know, we can't make this right now. You're being offered a John Carpenter film. Like, go and do it. You know, like, just go. Yeah. And he went and, you know, stayed and made his career out there and, did, you know, has become what he is, which is an absolute icon. And, um, and so that was that. And then later on, when we finally did get the, the, the money together, uh, we got Kevin McKenna attached and, you know, thank God we did. Cause like Kev's just, Kev is that role now, you know, and it's, that's what it He's is. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Kev's amazing and a lovely, lovely person. And yes, we did a few days training with a, an ex French foreign legion soldier, took our boys round the woods and did some training and maneuvers and exercises and such like, and Kev cracked a rib um, and was in considerable pain. Uh, but he kept it to himself for the first week because he was terrified that he would get replaced. Um, <laughs> I, I very much doubt that we would have done. Uh, assuming he was happy to work, it would have been okay. Um, but, yeah, he was scared that we were going to replace him. So uh, he kept it quiet for like, the first week. We got a load of footage in, in the can, and then he, he broke the news and was like, right, go see a doctor, please. Like, you know, get it sorted. Um, <laughs> You're like, you don't need to suffer this much for your art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and so that was that. And I, I still, you know, one day dream of working with Statham on something. I think it would be a blast. Um, I've met him a few times over the years, and he's always been so gracious and like remembers the whole process and all that kind of stuff. And because um, there's other people as well, there's like Simon Pegg. Um, I had seen him in um, what I'd seen him on. Seen him on Bill Bailey. I'd seen him on a few TV shows, Big Train. Um, I don't know if he. Uh, no, he must have done Spaced at that point or whatever. But um, but we offered him the role of Spoon quite early on and came in to meet with us. And again, I was like, that guy's going to be a movie star. Um, and uh, he'd promised uh, Edgar that he was going to do Shaun of the Dead as his first feature. So he couldn't he couldn't do us, but he was, he was glad he met us anyway. And it was like, it was great because he's a lovely guy. And um, and then we, we looked out and we got Darren Morford, who just is Spoon, you know. And yeah. that uh, Simon Pegg guy, he's gone off to do, have some kind of a career somewhere or whatever. He's doing something. Yeah, he's done a couple, he's done a couple of things. Of things. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I think it's kind of, there's something wonderfully ironic, though, about like if you were going to lose an actor to another director, at least it was John Carpenter. 
and, you know and I, I mean? that was it. I was like, I couldn't <laughs> advise him not to go and do that film. It's like it's like it's John Carpenter. <laughs> yeah. Like regardless of whether the film turned out, you know, whatever you may think of the film, it's like shit. It's John Carpenter. He's making a movie. Go and be in it. You know. So yeah, yeah definitely. You know, yeah. and then you know Simon did John of the Dead, which is uh, one of my favorites as well. So, oh yeah. You know, I remember when when I was working with George Romero on a project, um, I was asking what he thinks of sort of remakes and things of that like of his work, and it was far and away his favorite thing kind of around his work was Shaun of the Dead. He loved Shaun of the Dead. He thought it was it just hits know, all the right buttons. It's just like yeah. yeah, just very very smart. You know, that good guy. He's quite smart. Yeah, <laughs> and it's funny too looking at this film. Um, which, you know, just got this beautiful 4K remaster from the, the folks at Screen Factory and, and looks, you know, better yeah. than ever. Um, you know, and it has all these great set pieces. And But I also know that the movie had a pretty lean budget. So it's definitely one of those films you're looking at and you're like, okay, you know, I'm going to guess kind of necessity was the mother of invention on a film like this, that there was things you'd want to do or effects or sequences that you had to kind of kind of use, you know, bubble gum and spit and polish to kind of achieve the things that you wanted. Is that is that the case with this film? Uh, very much so. Um, I mean, I think maybe the, the money went a little bit further then than it would now. But, you know, because we right. managed to, I don't, you know, it was two and a quarter million dollars, I think, was the total budget on it. And, you know, a chunk of that went to creating the werewolves. Um, but we filmed in Luxembourg where things are a little bit cheaper than the UK. And we made maximum use of the locations and, you know, things like the, the set. You know, we built the exterior of the farmhouse outside, but it only had three walls. So you were kind of limited angles with that. The set inside was, was you know, we, we used every inch of it and smashed it to pieces by the end of the film. Um, the farmhouse blowing up was a miniature. Um, so, you know, we, we used a lot of tricks, definitely. Um, to try and make things work. Um, I mean, the werewolves themselves is like just trying to make, you know, we had, I think we had one fully animatronic werewolf and a couple of stunt suits uh, and then just trying to, you know, make them look like there was more of them and, you know, lighting and all sorts, just lots, lots and lots of tricks for sure. Do you think, you know, on a, on a film like that where you're having to kind of, you know, develop those tricks and kind of build up a toolbox of, you know, okay, I can solve this problem this way or that way. Do you think, you know, when you went forward in your career to do films like Doomsday or Game of Thrones that had, you know, considerably larger budgets, that being able to call back on those tricks, you know, was, was helpful in, in accomplishing these huge set pieces that you had? I mean, you had more resources on those films than on, on Game of Thrones, but you, on those things, you know, relatively speaking, you still outdid yourself with the, the schedules and the budgets you had for those films uh yeah and and a classic example of that was on on dog soldiers uh we needed to get a shot of like these werewolves uh eating on some guts and stuff like that and, and we achieved it through basically taking the the suit head off and a couple of the guys basically just hand operated them they got their, their hands in the back of the head and operated the jaws and we just like and, and it worked beautifully it's like it just gave a real life to it that you couldn't get through doing animatronics or whatever and then on Game of Thrones, they wanted a shot of the the direwolf, John John Snow's direwolf, um, biting somebody's neck or something like that. And, and they were all going to do it's all going to be CG, and we need this, and we need that. And I was like, give me the give me the the wolf because they had a a wolf head thing. I was like, give me the wolf head, <laughs> and and just stuck my hand and and, just, and literally just hand operated it and just did some you know, put some blood on it and made it fast or whatever, and yeah. you know, and it made it into the episode. And it's like, yeah, it's just a hand operated puppet thing basically, and it just it works a treat. So little tricks like that, for sure, like that you take from, 
you know, knowing how to do stuff quick and make it effective definitely paid off on Game of Thrones and off on Lost in Space and other things like that, where, you know, quite a, some of the directors come from the, to these shows from, like, A-list movies, and it's like a step down for them. And for me, it was like a big yeah. step up to have all this extra money and resources. But at the same time, it's like, well, if I've got tricks that'll get things done quicker and, you know, and look great, then use those. Yeah. Now, you know, you, after you finished Dog Soldiers, which, you know, I, I, I there was talk of a second film. And, and my guess is that there was like a rights thing or something, which is why you didn't do a Dog Soldiers 2. Was it something to do with ownership at that point? It was. Uh, there's certainly rights issues, uh, a long-running rights issues thing. You know, at the end of the day, the price that I had to pay to get it made was that I had to surrender the rights to the guy who financed it. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of a blessing and a curse in a way. But, uh, um you know, I got it made, and that's what that's what counts. Um, at the end of the day, I never, you know, I, when I was making it, it was like, oh, we, we, you toy with the idea of like, oh, well, if you could do a follow up or a sequel, or could it be part of a trilogy, and you come up with all these daft ideas for it, um, and it never really came to pass, and you know, maybe it never was meant to. I don't know, but um, I, I'd already kind of moved on to doing the descent after that, so it was like, okay, I'm doing so, uh, something else. We'll be back to the show in a moment. If you love what we're doing on Spill Your Guts, we could use your support helping to bring you more conversations with horror's icons, celebrities, creatives, and genre-defining artists. Please show your support by contributing whatever you can on our Patreon page. You can find us at www.patreon.com forward slash spillyourguts. All one word. If memberships are your thing, be sure to subscribe to our channel for exclusive bonus content, contests, and giveaways. Also, Please check us out on all the major social media channels for all things SYG. Thank you for listening, and now, let's get back to it. Now let's talk about The Descent. The Descent is like a really important movie for me. It's, you know, of any contemporary horror film, I think it's become iconic. I mean, it's it's so... Um, you know, a lot of horror filmmakers that I speak to that are sort of in and around my age, The Descent is kind of our go-to modern horror film that's actually scary. So many horror films these days are, they're fun or they're cool or they're gory, they're referential, they're very in and they're hip, and but they forget to be scary. And The Descent um, has this classic scariness to it because I think the fears of that movie are all very mm -hmm. primal, right? I mean, you're dealing with claustrophobia and the darkness and isolation and but one of the things I was thinking watching the movie again to speak to you today is there are so many little nicks and scratches and cuts and bruises that these characters sustain before the creatures even show up and I was curious if for you as a filmmaker was the concept there to kind of wear both the characters and the audience down before the monsters even arrive yeah 100% um, I mean the whole film was made as an exercise to try and make the scariest movie I could possibly make because people had said that Dog Soldiers was like, it's good and it's kind of scary, but it's also kind of funny. Um, so, you know, I wanted to make a, a scarier film as I possibly could because I was inspired by super scary films as well. Oi, Molly. <laughs> good timing. Dog Soldiers. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> So, yes, I, I set out to make a really terrifying film and tap into certain primal fears, like you say. Um, but then, um, oh, God, I 
fucking dogs distracted me now. Like, sorry, what was the, what was the question? I've forgotten the question. I was like, we're going to have to, the editor is going to kill me if we don't, yeah. Um, um, let me think. Yeah, we were, I had to get distracted too. Oh, the question was, um, was were, were you coming at that from a standpoint of kind of wearing down yes, the characters before the monsters so, show up? So, yeah, yeah, so the idea was to make this, I wanted to, to put the characters through the ringer and like make it as bad as it can possibly be and then make it worse and then throw in the creatures and make it worse. That was, that was absolutely in, in my mind. So that's what, it's why the, you know, the creatures don't show up until, you know, like 40 minutes from the end of the film. Really, I mean, there, there, there's, there's evidence of them, there's hints at them, all kind of stuff, but they're really just in the last 40 minutes of the film because I wanted to put the audience and the characters right through the ringer as far as the cave itself is concerned. And having, I did some caving before, I, I, I went with the cast, we went caving to get a feel for it. And just reading about caving, I did a lot of research about it, about all the different ways that caves want to kill you. And or drive you mad, or you know whatever it is that they're going to do, and they're such dangerous places, and they are primal. I mean, you know, they're, they're you know we go yeah. back to cavemen, and it's 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 really primal stuff. So yeah, I wanted to put all that in there. It's funny because you know it's it's a thing too when you're watching the beginning of the film and and um, uh, the the Sarah character kind of goes through so much trauma at the beginning when it went in that horrible car accident, which is just so shocking right at the start of the movie, you know, but I think it also set the stage for, to me, one of the themes very much running through the descent is, is trauma and the effect of trauma on, on people and, and how it shapes and forms them. And, um, you know, for you as a filmmaker approaching a movie like this, that could have just been a, you know, a, a geek fest, a monster movie, but isn't because of, of this arc with these characters and what they go through and their friendship and particularly the Sarah character, you know, what was your sort of perspective on Sarah's journey as a character in this film? Um, well, it was always a descent into madness as much as into the cave that she was, she was going to lose her mind somewhere along the way. And the notion that the people that you love can end up being, you know, the, your worst enemies and, and messing around with emotions and friendships and, and all that kind of stuff. It was always going to be a dark journey for her. And I, I, knew, I, you know, I, I knew how I wanted it to end before I, you know, as I was writing, it was like, I know this isn't going to have a happy ending um, one way or another, you know, and I was massively inspired by the endings of things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Brazil, actually, was another big inspiration. It's just this notion that, just because you escape at the end or even if you survive at the end is not necessarily a happy ending. And it's, you know, it's one of the things too, I was thinking watching the movie is like, it has this beautifully, your use of the widescreen framing and, and positioning things that are just sort of off to the side or they're, you know, using that frame to create a composition and something John Carpenter does so well in his films. Um, you know, when you're approaching some of these sequences from a, a compositional standpoint as a filmmaker and you're trying to maximize, you know, I want to create tension and suspense. How do you kind of go about that and breaking that down and figure out how to use the frame? Well, I mean, it was it was a it was a, a, a tip that I got from Carpenter that kind of started this whole thing when he said, like, you know, if you film stuff in widescreen, you know, anamorphic or whatever, it's like it doesn't necessarily have to be a big impact on your budget. But it like it double it, it doubles like the production value of your film like instantly. You're suddenly making a widescreen movie, and and I've definitely followed that advice for sure. Um, but in terms of the, with the descent and the framings, was all about. I had this notion of accentuating the claustrophobia by having like a character lit by 
you know, in the corner of a black screen, like way down in the corner of a black screen or whatever, and then, then you realize that they're in a bigger cave or something or a tunnel, and playing with the darkness on the screen was a massive part of the claustrophobia of it all. I wanted huge swathes of the screen to be like pitch black. And uh, we, you know, we crushed our yeah. blacks a lot to make it to achieve that um, because that's what it's like when you're in a cave and playing with the colors, playing with that kind of framing, that kind of lighting. Uh, it was all designed just to try and create claustrophobic. I, I, I shot a lot of it on wide lenses, not only in widescreen, but on wide lenses because I actually thought that brought in the surroundings more than if you just shot everything on like long lenses, which might seem the obvious thing to, to make it claustrophobic. But I kind of thought, no, I want to feel the walls. I want to feel the caverns around the characters and then, you know, it'll feel more horrific. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, Sam McCurdy's lighting and um, John Harris's editing score. I mean, all these elements in the movie kind of everybody's on their game on that on, on this film. No, 100 percent. You know, I think I got I got this like, you know, this 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 the the A the A group of, of talent right at the cusp of like they've all gone off to do amazing stuff since. Um, and getting them together to do anything else is like virtually impossible because they're all so busy. But like we got, you know, Simon yeah. Bowles, a production designer, Sam McCurdy, John Harris. You know, these guys are all at the top of their game now. Um, but look, we got them just at the right moment, and everybody's just like, in, I think you know they were inspired by the film and they helped make the film inspirational so much. And, you know, the creatures in the movie, I think part of what works so well about them is that they don't feel like supernatural monsters. They feel like animals to me. But for you, what was sort of the backstory of the creature that you came up with? We get little hints of it throughout the film, but where where do you sort of see them as coming from or, or being? how did they become? Well, I, they I always said that they're, they're humans. They are just humans, but they are the, they're the cavemen who stayed in the cave. You know, th hundreds of thousands okay. of years ago, when 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 we were all living in caves, there was like a, an offshoot of society. Everybody else left, went to to build societies, build houses, build cities, the works. Whereas this other group, instead of coming out of the cave, they went deeper into the cave, and they've l learned to adapt and survive underground, and they've evolved to live underground. But they're still fundamentally human, um, but they're much more primal. And you know they've 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 lost their eyesight, but their hearings like in, in, improved. Wow. They've got the ability to sort of crawl and climb and stuff like that because they just live in that environment. Um, but there's a whole society down there. There's there's women crawlers and there's child crawlers, you know. And Sarah kills one of the children and then gets attacked by the mother. And it's like you know, flipping that whole thing on its head. And I love the idea that some people have said, you know, isn't it the story of like these this these group of crawlers that get attacked by these six women and like slaughtered. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that's a great, yeah, that's a great Who invade totally. their Because yeah. they're just doing their own thing and these people are yeah. invade. Yeah, totally. It's a funny, it's a funny person. And it's funny too, watching the movie again, it was like that scene where the little sort of child crawler gets killed. It, somehow, despite how hideous they are, it's still kind of a sad moment because you're like, oh, it was, she kills her, the, the mother's yeah, kid. No, of and the mother's kind of whimpering to... about it. It's like, and it's horrendous. Yeah. As as, as the, only, the only problem yeah. was is that some people didn't realize that it was a child. Um, but right. if you do, then I think that moment is really kind of poignant and, and all the more horrific for it. I wonder if, you know, have you had any ever feedback from sort of the caving community about, you know, not, because I watched that movie and I'm like, caving looks 
fucking awful to me after watching that movie. Like not just not because of monsters, just the caving part. I was like, no, thank you. That looks completely unpleasant. Well, I mean, I, by, by the standards of some of the stuff that I've seen online and documentaries and stuff like that, what we put in the film is fairly mild. You know, it's because like if, if you know the tunnel where Sarah gets stuck is like it's quite you know it's dry. Like it's, it's, it's a dry, yeah. dusty tunnel, but I've seen people crawl through tunnels like that, that are, that are slimy and wet or half full of water and stuff like that. And then that's truly, truly terrifying stuff. Yeah. It looks like a blast. Um, uh, you know, there's a great line in the film and I think it kind of summarizes to me that the theme of the movie where, where, um, I can't remember who says it. Someone says to Sarah that the worst thing that has ever happened to her has yeah. already happened. And, and to me, you know, there's that moment at the end of the film when Sarah bursts from the ground and takes that big gasp. And, you know, the audience kind of takes that gasp with her. It's a, it's an amazing moment because of it. I, you know, you feel that breath she takes, but it also seems to me that that moment is kind of and, you know, I don't know if this was intended, but it seems to me that it might have been is it almost feels like a bit of a rebirth for that character, the way she bursts out of the ground and takes her that breath like a first breath. Was there any kind of, you know, am I off the mark at all or is there was there some of that in there for you when you were? making? Oh, no, that totally. Um, yeah, I mean, that you know, we we did a lot of, you know, we over um, exposed the image at the start of that because it was our first time in daylight for the, you know, for ages. So to suddenly burst out like, and it's super bright, like her eyes accustoming to the, to the daylight for once. And yeah, the taking the breath is like a first breath. And it, so it's totally about like a rebirth. Um, but then of course it's not actually happening. So it's, you know, it's a psychological rebirth. Yeah. Depending on which version of the ending. Yeah, 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 right? yeah. yeah. There's only one version really. Do you have a, which version do you, you, I'm guessing you prefer the not happy ending. Well, uh, but that's the ending. thing. That's, that's, <laughs> I always argue is that what's the happier ending where she loses her mind, but she's with her daughter again, or whether she escapes, but everybody's dead. Everybody she knows is dead. She's out of her mind, but she's, you know, she's escaped. She's, she's probably going to be in asylum for the rest of her life or prison or God knows what. Yeah. It's like, that's not a happy ending to me. No, no. I mean, and there's that moment at the end. And I remember, you know, I was watching the movie again yesterday and where she's in the car and she's escaped. We think she, she's escaped. And that that truck yeah. bears down on her and that horn. And I was like, Neil, you're such an asshole in that moment. Like that, it's so great. And you're like, oh my God, this movie doesn't stop. Like, you know, it, for me, for you as a filmmaker to not even give her that moment to recover, to shift still something bearing down on her. Was the concept behind that little bit with the truck? And it's such, it's a little moment, but it feels feels to me like it was a way of saying she's never going to put this behind her in a true way that this is going to be with it's her definitely it's definitely that kind of stuff it's just that these things are going to complete you know she's in such a state such a, a, a fractured state that even like a truck driving past is going to terrorize her from now on like so. and the audience too i mean i you know you're so for me as an audience i've seen this movie so many times and i still watch it and by the end i'm tired <laughs> <laughs> yeah no we we definitely like went out all out to like exhaust the audience there's a, there's a certain part earlier on where it's just like one thing after another after another and you just get that sense of like yeah. oh my god oh my god how can we keep going like this was it an exhausting film to make? Uh, it was a tough film to make. Um, probably more exhausting for the for the cast than it was for me particularly, but it was very, very tough. It was mentally exhausting for me, physically exhausting for them. Um, okay, well, let's talk about The Lair, your new film. Um, I, I, I got to see the film. I think it's it's such a kind of... You know, it encompasses all the things you, that I think that people think of you as being very good at. But there's some new stuff in there as well that, that I think is going to really surprise people. And and the movie is kind of, you know, it's it's a bit of 
there's some really intense stuff in it, but there's also some laughs. And there's, you know, were you trying to kind of with this film make a, a sort of balls out, just fun action horror romp kind of approach? Was that sort of hundred percent? I just wanted to make a really fun uh, uh, monster movie. Um, I love a good monster movie. Um, I wanted to sort of mix the tones. You know, there's a little bit of descent in there, but mainly it's kind of I, I consider it to be like a distant cousin of dog soldiers in that there's a similar kind of thematic quality soldiers versus something. Um, but they're different bunch of soldiers, different they're American soldiers and British soldiers and I like that kind of culture clash between the two. Um it's a good source of humor. But uh, I wanted to go all out with like the gore and the action and, and make it quite relentless and just you know, entertaining. It's like a very, very intense 90 minutes of like gore and action and laughs. It's like, it's everything. And yeah, I love the line Jamie Bammer's character has where, uh, batter up you son of a bitch. Like I was like, this is classic. Well, what else are you going to say when you're about to beat somebody to death with a baseball bat? I mean, it's like, you know, gotta say something along those lines. But it felt like kind of a Snake Plissken line or, you know, something we'd see in that style of film. And, you know, I think that's... And also, one of the things I have have to say about the film that I really enjoyed was that you have... It has such a diverse cast, you know, and and nobody is kind of, um, you know, I, I... I'm trying to figure out the sort of right way to say this, but the, the character you have, sir, I think he's what he's an Afghani yep, yep. character. The, 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 in, um, I feel like in a lot of American films, that character would have ended up being hiding something sinister. But in this film, he's one, he becomes one of the guys and becomes a lovable character we can kind of root for. And it seemed to me that, you know, it, it was so cool to see you take an approach to an ensemble cast again, where you can, where, where that kind of diversity and that kind of eclectic mix of characters was such a part of the heart of the story. I love doing that. Um, I love creating a, you know, like I said, yeah. it goes back to what we were saying before, like creating a, div- you know, a diverse, interesting group of characters, putting them in a life-threatening situation and seeing how they cope. I always kind of think that as well as like that, the, the one thing that might unite us as, as human beings is like a, an alien threat. Like, so it finally becomes us against them as opposed to like us against each other. Um, so I just thought that maybe these characters would like join forces to battle the greater enemy um, and survive, yeah. you know, at the end of the day. Everybody, I mean, he says it himself. It's just, what are, you know, what are we doing here? What's fighting to get home? And that's it. I mean, I think, you know, kind of in the in the political climate that we're in now, um, a movie like this is going to be a good kind of respite for people to kind of have some fun and also think about what you just said, though, that that idea of like, you know, coming together to 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 kind of get through a difficult time, you know, and after the pandemic and all this kind of stuff, like, was that part of what attracted you to this project or am I kind of looking a little No, no, that was, the, that was the origins <laughs> of it was that you know, it, it was created kind of in, in lockdown as an idea of like how to make a sort of small ensemble cast in a, in a few locations in the desert or something like that that we could make that was kind of COVID friendly. Um, it got way more ambitious than that and then suddenly became about Russians and Afghanistan and secret bunkers and stuff and alien monsters. But um, but that was still the principle behind it, Yeah. I love the, um, you know, I'll just as a little tease for for the listeners, the elevator attack sequence is badass. People are going. Oh, to great! Thank you. Them. That's such a cool. Thank way. you. No, I was proud of that. I did, <laughs> yeah, I and that. I wanted to get that sort of relentlessness that that we achieved at the end of uh, descent and stuff with this of just like just layering on, like just when you think something's going to give them some relief, it's like it's not. Yeah. 
that I think that will be a talked about sequence when people get to experience the film because it's just it's so every you know there's a moment I remember and I won't spoil it but where you'll probably know what I'm talking about where a certain character yeah. meets their demise <laughs> in that sequence and I was like oh my god like that was amazing it's so cool yeah, and crazy that was fun. um <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what's what's the plan with the film? You've taken it to festivals and the movie comes out October 28th. Um, so are you just sort of, you know, turning around now and, and going to fest more festivals and talking to people about the film? Or Got a what few more festivals to go. It's playing Toronto After Dark uh, next week, just a couple of days before its release. Uh, I'm showing it in Trieste. I'm going to Norway next week to screen it there. Uh, so there's a few festivals screening it. And then, uh, yeah, it comes out in the U.S. Uh, near Halloween, October 27th or 28th, one of the two. And, uh, and then in the UK in January on Shudder. Uh, and are you going to be, are you, go, are you going to this? I can't in make Toronto it. I'm in it? Norway, unfortunately. Oh, but, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, sadly. But yeah, so it's, yeah. And I'm, I'm already. Yeah. Well, I, we'll have to find some reason to drag you out to Toronto. Oh, no, I, 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 I've been there many times. I love the place. I, I, I would have loved, I would have come back in a heartbeat. I just, I'd already committed to the other festival. So I was like, shit, you know, whatever. <laughs> and after you know after the lair do you have any project on the on the horizon or what are you uh, well up to this next? summer we already shot another movie uh it's it's totally different change attack it's a it's a violent gangster movie uh which we shot down in spain in the canary islands and uh, i'm editing that right now uh and then hopefully i've got a couple of things on the cards for next year so you know just keeping busy now, I think it's safe to say you, you have become one of the masters of horror. So can you promise us there's some more horror movies on the horizon? At least two or three horror movies in the works, definitely. Uh, I, I love making horror films. I mean, I, you know, we wouldn't want you to feel hemmed in or typecast or anything of that nature, but please I'll, keep making I'll definitely be doing movies, you know? a horror movie of some description next year. Well, will you come back of and course. tell us about it when you do? Of course. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so well. I this has been a blast. Thank you so much, Neil, for coming and talking to us. It's, and I've really enjoyed discussing oh, your thank amazing you very film much. With you. Cheers. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane and produced by Cindy McLean. Production editing and sound design provided by Blaine Swanson and One House Studio. Video production and editing generously created by Matt Sampier. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Our supervising producer is Jason Hill. For exclusive bonus content, giveaways, and contests, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com forward slash spillyourguts. All one word. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by supporters and listeners like you. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of Kevin's conversations with some of horror culture's titans of terror, as well as the many hours of bonus content, consider subscribing to our channel. But that's not the only way you can support what we do. If you like what you hear and you want more, get the word out to your friends, your family, random people on the street, retail cashiers, unattended children, the hot guy you work with, on-duty members of law enforcement, anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for the guts and gore of horror. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.